Well, kind of a crazy week, isn't it, with the organist not showing up, and we're doing the best we can up here, uh, but I'm actually enjoying myself very much. Um, we've had a great time in our last two weeks in Christian education, and we've talked about worship. I want to cap that off because I do not have much time with you, and I want to say this. Worship is simply the most important thing we do. Uh, in heaven, uh, we will not have Sunday school, Christian education. That's important, but it will not be in heaven. Uh, we will not have committees in heaven. Uh, I may have heard an amen from the congregation. Uh, but the one thing we will do in heaven is we will worship God forever. And that's a learned taste. That's an acquired Taste. We develop it. We don't grow up saying, oh, I can't wait to go to church, you know, and praise God. Um, uh, that's something we learn to do along the way. One of the things we've said in class more than once is that the word worship means to write down worth. We orth is the Anglo we orth is the Anglo Saxon word. It means worth, and ship is a variation corruption of skip s c i p to write God's worth. God's good, write it down. God's merciful, write it down. God's holy, write it down. God is gentle, write it down. And Christians have written it down. I mean, if you travel around the world and see, you know, historical churches, you'll see that on the altar there will be sometimes the words, holy, 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 or do this in remembrance of me. Uh, when I was a youth minister back in the 70s and 80s, kids had, uh, teenagers had the bumper stickers, and they would put them on their notebooks, and they would take it to school. And they had, uh, Jesus is Lord, or they would have the ichthys fish. Uh, we have t-shirts with Christian messages on it. Uh, I've even seen some people with tattoos that say Jesus is Lord or God is good all the time. Those are statements of worship. Just very simple things. We might do worship in a very grand ceremony. We in our Anglican tradition, especially on Sundays, like to do that. But we can do it in a very simple way. A family sitting around a table with a simple prayer and to offer to God His worship. I want to take two words for my sermon today. The word worship and the word glorify. This Old Testament, Old Testament, it was Old Testament, but I'm thinking the Psalm, Psalm 148, is a statement of worship. I've been praying it every day this last week and sometimes uh, several times in a day. And that particular psalm is what's called a Hillel psalm. The last six psalms all begin the same way. Praise the Lord. And in Hebrew, that is Hallel, praise, U, the letter U, the, and Yah, short for Yahweh, which is Hallel, U, Yah, is praise the Lord. I prefer to say hallelujah to saying praise the Lord, but some translations do it both ways. I like saying hallelujah because it makes me feel I'm speaking in tongues. But, you know, we delight to say praise the Lord. We delight to say these good things about God. And so when we come to worship, we want to do that. 
This psalm is a particular take on worshiping God because it's in couplets. Verses 1 and 2 go together, and my notes are missing, but I think I can do some of this from memory. And it calls upon spiritual beings in heaven. Verses 3 and 4 then is another couplet, and it calls upon physical things in heaven. Uh, like, you know, the stars, the sun, uh, the sky, the waters above the sky. Uh, they are called. And so what the worshiper is doing here says, y'all come and help us worship God. Y'all come and help us worship God. Y'all come and help us worship God. Now, this isn't a prelude to worship. This is worship. And we do this every Christmas Eve. You recognize we sing, O come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him, Christ. You come, let us adore Him. You come, let us adore Him. And you come, let us adore Him. Now, the very act of calling other people to worship God is itself an act of worship because what the person is saying is God is worthy to be worshipped. So you come and do it. And you come and do it too. And you come and do it too. So worship is a beautiful thing. Now, most of this psalm is a reference to physical nature. It deals with the angels and such in heaven. It deals with physical parts in heaven. Then it talks about, you know, the sun and the moon. It talks about the land. It talks about sea monsters. It talks about creeping things on the earth. And that they all are called upon to worship God. Now, I have an experience that through my life, I've, when I have a class, if this subject comes up, I always ask people the same question, where do you feel closest to God? I want you to think about that question right now for you. Where do you feel closest to God? And then we go around, I have people say it, and it's interesting, about eight out of ten people in a class will say, I feel closest to God in nature. And they look guilty when they say that. That, you know, somehow, since I'm a priest, the right answer is in church. <laughs> and I do feel close to God in church, but that didn't start out being that way. My times of experiencing God being close was in nature. Think about it for you. You know, for some people, I was walking on the beach and the sun hadn't quite risen, and then suddenly. There it was, and I just knew a loving God was present. Or for me, it's being in the woods and the mist is floating through. Um, one of the places for me is the current river floating down the canoe, and I just put my paddle down, and I just marvel at nature. When I was a college student, soon after my conversion, I lived out on my uncle and aunt's farm in the country, and there was a back, what we called the pond pasture, a 60, and I would go out there, and I would just walk around the pond, and I would sing, and I would praise. So I'd memorize the Te Deum, and I would chant it. We praise Thee, O God. We acknowledge Thee, P, the Lord. I mean, if somebody was walking up and down the uh, railroad, they would have thought some crazy person lived over there. On one occasion, I was kneeling down, and I wasn't praying aloud, but I put my hands up, and I was kneeling down, and I was praying, and all of a sudden, I heard this rustle in the grass, and I opened my eyes, and six feet in front of me, walking straight toward me, was a skunk. And I said, hello. <laughs> and that skunk stopped, and he, he kind of came up and his rear end went up and he was kind of moving left and he was moving right with that rear end. He says, I can shoot left and I can shoot right and I can shoot you. And I said, and we can be friends. 
and I talked very calmly. And I said, we can be friends and, you know, just walk away from this one. But if you shoot me, I just want you to know, I will come back and I will kill you and your entire family. I don't know if it was my tone of voice or whether it was the threat of what I had to say, but he did turn and walk off the other way, and they all lived happily ever after. But, you know, I added Brother Skunk to my prayer of St. Francis, you know, with Brother Sun and Sister Moon. Brother Skunk right there. We live together in beautiful harmony. And we do. We experience God in nature. And C.S. Lewis has a name for that. He got it from Baron von Hugel, and he got it from the religious sociologists of the first half of the 20th century. It's the word numinous. And that's that sense of the otherness of God. That when we come into the presence of God, you know it. When Isaiah went into the temple, he knew he was in the presence of God. When Ezekiel was there by the river Kadar, he knew he was in the presence of God. C.S. Lewis describes it like this. He said, if you were about to go into a room and I told you there was a man-eating tiger in that room, you would be afraid. But if you were about to go into a room and I told you that there was a ghost in that room, you would be afraid but in a different way. It's that different way which is numinous. And we have those moments of numinous, just the otherness of God. He's just like nothing else. That's what the word holy means. It doesn't mean primarily morally good. It means just utterly different. Our God is like nothing else. And so we come before Him and we say to Him, the very act of saying this is an act of worship, you are like nothing else. And so we worship God. We could talk about worshiping God in the church, but time limits me. I want to go to the second half and talk about glorifying. We have this passage from John. Jesus is saying, the Father, He prays, the Father will glorify Me that I might glorify the Father. And I have to say, all that language used to confuse the socks off of me. I had no idea what was being talked about. On the one hand, glorifying is like being a movie star. It's being famous. Wow. It's so-and-so. I thought, well, is that what God is wanting when He says He wants to be glorified? And the other meaning of being glorified is son that was associated with light. And C.S. Lewis says, it impressed me as though God were somehow glowing like an electric light bulb, but that's Lewis's term, not mine. And he says, and he couldn't see the point of God glowing like an electric light bulb. And so he just abandoned trying to understand glory. And then my professor, J.I. Packer, uh, told a story which brings it utterly home for me. He was preaching a sermon at the cathedral in Toronto. If you've ever been there on Toronto, it's about four short blocks up from, I don't know which uh, great lake it is, Huron maybe, and you look up from the lake from the water, and oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. Especially beautiful at night because it's all lit up. Well, Packer was looking for a local illustration. Preachers who go on the road sometimes have their canned sermon, but they're looking for a local illustration. So he's walking around downtown, and it was early twilight, and he's looking at this cathedral, and he says, come on, God, I normally get a good illustration before this. And he's looking up this cathedral, and it was just a big black blob. I mean, it was big, and it was dark, but it was just a blob. 
And he's saying, come on, I need an illustration. And right at that very moment, he heard a click, click, click. And the lights were coming up that were set to a timer, hidden, spotlights hidden behind bushes and hidden behind some stone walls. And the lights came up. And within 60 seconds, the whole cathedral was bathed in light like it was gold. And you could see the flying buttresses. You could see the pointed arches. You could see the uh, uh, gargoyles you know, looking over the top. And he goes, there's my illustration. To be glorified is to put the spotlight on it in such a way that you see its particular beauty. Or in the case of God, the good, the true, and the beautiful. You put the spotlight on it and you see it. And you go, oh my goodness, I never quite saw it before. And then you end up delighting in the beauty of what that thing is. One of the best sermons I ever heard on evangelism by, was by Donald Coggan. He was Archbishop of Canterbury back in the 60s. He preached to a general convention. I heard that sermon. And he preached on the text of John the Baptist in John chapter 1, where John the Baptist points at Jesus and says to his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the disciples, because he's pointing, are drawn to Jesus. Six. At least six of Jesus' disciples were previously disciples of John the Baptist. And he's pointing. And Coggin said something I've remembered my entire life. He said, Lord, make me a pointer. And that's what it means to glorify. To point at a person, at either Jesus or at God, in such a way that people see the good, the true, and the beautiful. So when Jesus says to Father, glorify me that I may glorify you, Jesus is saying, put the light on me. Make people see the significance of me so that I, in turn, can make them see the significance in you. We look at Jesus and we say, oh my goodness. And then Jesus is pointing at God and then we say, oh my goodness. And at that point, we are lost in wonder, love, and praise. And how do we do that? We've all had the experience of walking into a room or a crowd and everybody's looking at the same thing. And what happens to you? Your eyes are picked up kind of like a magnet and go, and are drawn to what it is that they're looking. And if 80%'s looking this way and 20%'s looking this way, it doesn't take long at all to see what they're looking at. I was in a play when I was in high school. I had a bit part. I think I had eight lines in the entire play. It was The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, and only two major players, Walter and Mrs. Mitty, the rest of us were bit parts. But in the climax scene of the entire play, we're all on the stage. And our director said to us, the problem is, with 12 people on the stage, your grandmother, who came to see the play, can't see who's talking. There's too many people. She's looking around and she can't see the mouths moving. And so what you have to do, you people on the play, you need to look at Walter in such a way that, you know, everyone looks up and goes, Walter. And then when Mrs. Walt, Walter Mitty starts speaking... Look at her. And then everybody immediately... So we had two spotlights. One on Walter, one on Mrs. Mitty. And then in addition, he said, and you be sure to look at 
you know, who it is that's speaking. But he said, when you turn and look at Walter speaking, don't turn and look at Walter and then look at Mrs. Mitty. Look at Walter. You know, I mean, exaggerate. Okay, you're laughing and it looks silly, but you know, we do that with God. That as we live our lives, we are to look at God in such a ridiculous fashion like that, that people's eyes are drawn to Him. You know, I think of my dad who did this in a, in a, in a barn. They had had a horse show on our, on our farm. And when the whole thing was over, you know, they had groomed the horses and put them away and they cleaned up everything and put all the tack away. And then they're sitting around, about six of them, doing a post-game um, uh, uh, conversation, post-mortem on the whole thing, and just having a good time, horse people hanging out. And my dad's dog came in, Sheltie, and put her muzzle down on my dad's knee, and he leaned over, and he said, Oh, there you are, Sheltie. You're, you're such a good puppy. I love you. I love you because you're such a good dog. And then he stopped and he said, No, that's not right. He said, Sheltie, I don't love you because you're a good dog. I love you because you're my dog. Yeah, that's the reason I love you. And he started loving on her again. And then Dad looked like he didn't know what he was talking about and was hearing himself talking out loud. And he goes, and you know, that's just like God. God loves us not because we are good. He loves us because we are His. Just like you, Sheltie. And those six people are sitting around. And what happened to those people? They saw God glorified. In the simple story of a man petting his dog, they saw God glorified. We just sang as this song, this gradual hymn, In My Life Be Glorified. In My Song Be Glorified. As the deacon came down and read the words, In These Words Be Glorified. And then finally we closed it off with, and in my life be glorified. We want to live our lives in such a way that when people look at us, they see Jesus. And that's what I want with your life. That's what I want with my life. And we come here to be reaffirmed and strengthened in that orientation. I close by praying the prayer that Archbishop Donald Coggan prayed. O oh Lord, make me a pointer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.